0: Hello, and welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Lindsay Baroker, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Andrea Pearson. And I'm Joe Lalo. And today we have software veteran turned full-time author, Mal Cooper, joining us to talk Facebook ads, book launches, and marketing. She's written the popular Help My Facebook Ads Suck and has two new marketing books forthcoming, Help My Launch Plan Sucks and Help My Marketing Strategies Suck. It's clear there's a lot of sucking in the author world. <laughs> and uh, Mal also writes lots of science fiction under M.D. Cooper. And... Uh, she has been with us on two former episodes of the self-published, or I don't even remember the name of our show, Joe, <laughs> Science Fiction Science, and, fiction fantasy. and fantasy
1: Marketing Podcast.
0: Excellent. Thank you for stepping in there, uh, where we talk beyond the basics of Facebook ads, Pinterest ads, and Amazon ads, and also one on mark, mastering Facebook advertising for authors. And I will put the links in the show notes in case you don't get enough today and you want to go back and check those out. Welcome, Mao, to the show, and please fix any part of the introduction that I screwed up.
2: I think it's good. Um, I, when you say all those titles in a row, it makes me sound like I'm really kind of like hard on authors, like, oh, you guys suck.
0: You know? <laughs> well, We possibly have a few things to work on as authors learning marketing. So I, I think it's fine. And you've got it branded.
2: It's true. I do. Yeah. Oh, the series we came up with is a little bit nicer. The series is Help I'm an Author, which I thought is also kind of appropriate.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, no mention of sucking in the series title. <laughs>
2: We thought about it, but we're like, that's, that's a lot of sucking going on there. And that's just gets <laughs> appropriate after a while.
0: Well, as I mentioned, we've had you on our earlier podcast twice, but for new listeners, why don't you tell us about yourself and what you've been publishing and how you kind of got into the nonfictioning, marketing
2: teaching side as well? So I, um, I published my first book in 2012, and I was kind of, you know, it was, I was a software engineer. At that point, I was um, a software architect for a fairly large company, actually. And so I didn't have a lot of time to write, but I managed to get two more books out between then and 2016. And in the fall of 2016, uh, my wife, Jill, and I both started doing ads. She kicked, kind of kicked off. And then once I saw how well it was working, I, I joined in. And um, we went from about $3,000 being our best month ever to in, in June of 2016 to $25,000 in November of 2016. And that was purely from ads. And at this, at that time, I was quite active in the 20 Books 50K Facebook group, and I kept seeing all these authors saying that ads don't work and ads don't work. And I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure ads do work." So I, um, I I wrote a couple of posts about how to make ads work better, and people said you should turn this into a book. And that kind of went on from there, and that kind of kicked off this whole um, author sort of teaching thing that Jill and I do now. Right? Mostly, I go around and do talks, and we both work together on the books and stuff like that. And in the meantime, I wrote, I wrote 90 science fiction books.
3: Alright. Um, okay. So what do you have lined up for this year? And how do you plan to attack
2: your own launches? This year, I have... Well, I have two books coming out in the next two weeks. And I think actually is about 20 books this year. But the third book that com- I have coming out um, is actually about launches. It's the Help My, my um, Launch Plan Sucks book. And that book is... Um, something. Actually, Jill and I started doing it for a couple of reasons. One, we realized there was a lot of things we weren't doing ourselves that we knew we should have done. And we thought, if we're going to make a big, giant checklist or something like that, we might as well put it into a book. Um, And we also looked at a lot of other authors who release less than we do and make more money than we do. And we thought, well, like, okay, there's probably things we can do to improve our launch process as well. Um, Some of those things being like, for example, um, using Goodreads as a way to capture KU readers. Because KU readers, you can't... When you tell them that when you have a book on pre-order, you can't capture them in any any way, um, but if you get them to put your book on their bookshelf in Goodreads, Goodreads will email them when your book comes out, um, and Goodreads like is guaranteed to do that. So there's a lot of little tricks like that, that. We want to make sure we do more ourselves, and then we want to help other people know about all those tricks as well.
1: Okay, excellent. Um, as someone who, if all goes well, is about to do this three times in a row this year, are there any specific challenges to launching a new book in a long-running series that hasn't had an installment in a while? So like a late series book for a series that maybe hasn't even had a book in, say, a year and a half or so?
2: I mean, I guess in some respects, you're almost, it's almost like you're, you almost have to relaunch the entire series in a way. Um, and that might depend a little bit on the strength of your newsletter and how active it is, and some other things you have. Like, if you've been releasing other books, and your your newsletter is active, and you have readers that are engaged with you, then it would probably be all right. But if you haven't actually released anything in say a year, a year and a half, um, and your newsletter's stale, you haven't re- used used it in a while, you're in many respects kind of almost starting over. And I would almost treat like say it's like say it's book three or book four. I would almost treat that like a relaunch of book one as well, and really focus heavy promotion on book one even as far as like a month to two months in advance of the new book coming out, because you want to get new flow of readers coming into book one so that they start trickling through the series. And you can use that as a way to remind everybody who might've read um, back in the past that, Hey, this author's out there because you can do something to talk about in your newsletter and online and whatnot. And then it reminds them that you're around just thinking about, you know, say it's before when before comes out. That's just kind of, that's probably how I would tackle that.
0: Yeah. It's hard to just, Randomly get new people to try book five or, or jump into that at that point.
2: Yeah. And, and that's a long running series. It really is what you have to do. You have to you're constantly marketing book one is really what you're doing.
0: So on the other end of the spectrum, uh, you know, the rapid release book launch tactic has been working for some authors for several years now. Is that something you talk about in your book? And are people still seeing a lot of success with that?
2: I I actually don't think rapid release ever worked. Um, That's actually one of the things we're going to talk about in the book. I think rapid release has always um, been—it's always been a red herring. That was—I think—that was an incorrect assumption about the types of success people were having, because you'll see far more authors who rapid release and fail than authors who rapid release and succeed, just like any other kind of release. I don't believe that rapid releasing is is a, a tactic that really works. I believe that rapid releasing probably involves a bunch of other marketing tactics that, if done properly, work really well. But I don't think it's actually connected to a need to rapid release. I think all that rapid releasing does is it, is it burns out offers and can't really folks that fast on a regular basis. Um, I know it's sort of a cynical view. I, I, I'm i that person. I'm always like, well, you know, that thing you thought that worked actually wasn't. But I think really is that when people were rapidly releasing me, it was, it was mainly that they were they were able to generate more buzz and it gave them more things to talk about. But they could have actually possibly done the same amount of marketing activities and generate just as much buzz without having to put out four books in, in you know two months or something like that. They could have actually probably done the exact same or very similar activities and, and only had one book out or two books out and, and done just as well.
0: Do you think then that... Because I, I feel as someone who, who does that, that you get... A, you can earn more at once because you're putting out a bunch of books at once. And that it just seems like there's more momentum going and that you're yeah. putting a lot of money in advertising book one. And right away, they can go on and buy book two and three. But I, I'd love to hear a differing opinion. So happy to hear your take on it.
2: Well, I think I think that you... like you, the, One of the things you got to keep in mind is like... And this is an example people use all the time. They're still selling Harry Potter to new people. You know, they they didn't need... They don't... and. And they don't need to have. Um, oh, my metaphor is going to break down here really quickly. Well, I guess this is basically to say that there's there's massive audiences out there, and Harry Potter book one, before book two came out, sold more books than all of us have put together, right? And we've done fairly well. Um, some of us, have, I don't have the waste numbers, but I assume we've all done it well enough that that um, you know we would we we make a career out of this. So what I'm saying by that is that. There are so many readers out there that you don't need to have two, three, four, five, six books in a series to do well. If you can get the marketing techniques down right, you can have a book one that does really well, um, and have and write book two at your own time, own speed. Now, to what you're saying about about the effect of having more books out is is releasing a book is a marketing activity, um, and it's a marketing activity that can generate sales. Like when in 2018, when I did 44 books, um, I was able to drop my marketing spend tremendously, um, and make way more money than I had any other year. And, and I did that by just releasing books all the time, um, but I didn't want to have to keep doing that. What I wanted to figure out a way to do is make more money releasing fewer books, and and, I'm, I, want, and I especially wanted to do that after I started seeing some of these authors who are making seven figures and doing two or three books a year. I'm like, I'm a chunk. I'm writing forty four books a year. And these people are making like three times the money that I am by releasing three books. Like they're making literally like like 20, 30 times more money for their effort than I am. And that's when I realized that, that yes, I could pump out a lot of books and use the release activity itself for each new book as a marketing tool, or I could just market and not have to release the book.
0: It does seem that there's kind of a... You should find out what your natural strength is because for some people like... Like, I love the writing. The marketing is something I do because I have to. So I love that releasing a new book helps yeah. with marketing. And, but other people are like, no way, a book a year is like the top of what I could possibly do. And just maybe find the marketing strategy that works with their natural tendencies as a writer.
2: Yeah. And that is something that we talk about uh, in the launch plan book. We're like, what can you do? Like, what can you produce? Can, are you capable of producing 20 books a year? And do you want to write 20 books a year? And if you do, then, then you, then you will have to market less. I guess. I, I guess I should say, when I was speaking poorly of rapid releasing, I'm thinking of the scenario where someone banks a bunch of books and then rapid releases them, and they're not capable of simply pumping out a book or two a month forever. Um, that's, I feel like that's a different scenario than rapid releasing. That's just your release pace. That's not you trying to trying to bank a bunch of books and, and do a fast release and then trickle on afterward. You know, because I think I think you you and I are both like that, Lindsay. We both just write a lot of books. Um, and that's you know as long as these fingers keep working, I'm gonna keep doing that. But if I was a scenario where I could only write like you know three or four books a year and I bank those four books, I released them over six months and then I'm, I'm burnt out and I can't write another book for like eight or nine months, that's not gonna be a strategy that's gonna work for well.
0: That's true. And I usually when I hear people saying, like, should I write the first three before I release them? And they're like, it's going to take two years. I'm like, well, that strategy may not even still be working that well in two years. So maybe in that case, it wouldn't be as wise.
2: And and what if you just can't get any traction on book one and you spent three years writing two to three years writing all these books and you throw book one out there and the readers are all like, this is terrible. The trope's over. And and you made this mistake in book one, you're like, crap, I wrote like a whole bunch of books that follow that, you know, it's because there is. I, I do believe a little bit in the idea of of the um, um, the lean release process. Michael Landerly talked about this a lot. It comes from from software development where you just try and put out um, a simplest, the the least refined version of a product you can get away with to see if it's viable before you put a lot of time and energy into it and and rapid releasing when you're not sure about something is kind of the opposite of that actually.
0: Right, good point too. Somebody might not want to do that for their first foray into publishing until they kind of know they've got yeah. some readers. They know what they like.
2: Yeah, I mean, we all kind of. I mean, I I sucked when I first started writing. I had my my books had dumb mistakes in them, and I can't imagine if I had just if I and actually it's, it's interesting too because I I discovered when I wrote book three that my readers had expected me to do something that I wasn't planning on doing, um, and they were like they were they they. I had created an expectation of my readers that a certain chain of events was going to happen. And if I hadn't actually released more slowly, I probably would have screwed that up and probably lost a lot of readers. But I was watching the reviews. they were like, I can't wait for XYZ to happen. And like everybody's saying, me too. And I'm like, oh, crap. I had no intention of ever doing that. So it was good for me to to go slow enough that I could I could get that feedback and, and, and figure out what, what I needed to fix before I broke it.
0: And then for the folks who are doing maybe one book a year or a couple books a year that you've been studying, that are making seven figures, um, what do you feel that they're doing in order to keep that book one selling uh, after, you know, I'm not sure I totally believe in the Amazon Cliffs and stuff, but, um, no, you no, know, no. after the momentum is worn off and it gets to be more of a slog to keep it selling.
2: The people that do release um, a lot, a lower number of books and make a lot of money fall into two camps. One of them are KU people, because I'm sure you've noticed that uh, with, with KU, if you get a certain amount of momentum going, your KU just sort of goes along at an even pace all the time. And you'll have, sale, you'll have um, um, uh, sales spikes whenever you have releases. But by and large, KU is, is pretty, pretty straightforward. And as you get a bigger and bigger library, your sales spikes will decrease because you'll actually sort of have a, have a lot of momentum there. So the, the people who release fewer books that are in KU... Um, do a lot of constant marketing of their back their their backlist to Ku years to keep that money going between releases, um, and the people who aren't in Ku rely on these massive launches that they do once or twice a year. And they they have a like for for me, I don't even do cover reveals anymore because it's just like I cover like every other week. It's just I put a post on Facebook like this is the new book cover. But for the people that do one two three launches a year, their cover release is a party. It's an event. There's giveaways. There's and they they actually there's people who do it poorly and we don't hear about them and there's people that do it really really well and they actually they actually do really well and so some of these people they'll make they'll make like a quarter million dollars on the release of a book um, once or twice a year and that's that's enough to keep them going you know and then, and they they, they basically they, they have this process where they just build up momentum. For, for months uh, uh, in advance and they always they also always focus really heavily on ways to build personal relationships with their readers so that they can talk to their readers email their readers all year round about all sorts of stuff and maintain their attention so that when time comes to say buy my book those readers are opening their emails and following them on Facebook they they get that message
3: I think I could survive off of a quarter million a year twice know, a year
2: right like <laughs> for like writing one to two books like that's not that much work for that kind of money. That's insane.
3: No, and I just I just learned that. Um, according to you, and I'm I I kind of like this philosophy you're you're sharing. It's very different from what's out there. But I've been doing things wrong for White and Ku because <laughs> I hate big launches and I don't release a book a month. <laughs> <laughs> I think
2: um, I think there's ways that that you know you could you could make that work as well.
3: Get around it. Work around it. Yeah. Um, okay, so how do print and audiobooks factor in for what you would consider good launches? Um, how do you recommend authors handle launches of the different mediums?
2: Very few authors... Well, in, in speaking in fiction, um, print really isn't that relevant, I don't think. Um, unless you really just spend a lot of effort getting that book into bookstores, you know, doing the Ingram grind to make sure you can get that book to, to major retailers. Um, because if you're going to go print, I don't know if you guys talked about this or not before, but you don't want to do expanded distribution with Amazon. You actually want to put your book up on Amazon without expanded distribution, and then also put it on Ingram. And that's just to be the amount of effort. Like I actually calculated the cost and and effort in doing print one time versus the return. I have to sell a lot of print books to actually make it worth my while to go through all that rigmarole to to sell those print books. Um, If I don't really care about it, then it's it's easier because I can do it evenings and weekends. I don't consider my time to be as expensive, so I don't consider printing part of a, a, a part of a fiction launch um, audio I actually I think is pretty important I think if you can you can time an audio and um, ebook launch at the same time you can do really well I haven't yet done one of those myself but I have been watching a lot of authors who do them and I've seen them do quite well and I have one happening I don't actually know when it's going to happen yet because I don't get to be in control of that timing but I think it's going to be sometime in April I got a uh, I did a contract with audible and so I got their, their shiny Audible advance that they do, which are quite significant advances you can get from Audible if you can if you can get a hold of someone and do that. And that I'll have a trilogy that's actually going to have each book is going to release simultaneously. Actually, and in that scenario, I'm making enough money from the Audible advance that it's what I would normally make from a really good ebook launch. So if even if the ebook like if, even if the whole adventure flops, I'm actually not out of any money. So I'm pretty excited about that actually.
1: That's one, of the, uh, that's one of the great things about getting in advance. Like, we talk a lot, obviously, about self-publishing here, but there are some aspects of traditional publishing that you could certainly understand why they existed. And, you know, if, if they're offered to you, then by all means, take advantage. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, all right. So we've had a variety of different re- recommendations with regards to launch strategies in the past, but it seems increasingly that the consensus is uh, you should be spreading your promotion out so that you have a steady build like you were talking about for the major launches, a steady build instead of a a, a one time spike. Uh, yeah. do, do you agree that 's the case, and like what would be your recommendation for for pulling off that steady build? Well, I think the thing to think about uh, and we'll speak mainly in terms of what
2: Amazon and I guess some of the other major retailers think about is is Amazon cares about um, selling stuff shockingly um, and so the other retailers as well, and they 've only got. You know, they, they, only, they know that people only, only have so much money. And this especially applies to Amazon, because Amazon will sell you everything from toilet paper to, to your books. So Amazon's like, I want to get all your money. Um, and they want to get your money, they want to get the consumer's money, I should say, in the most effective way possible. So if your book doesn't make them very much money and it chews up a lot of email space for them, because Amazon only has so many ways that they can make, like, it's called touching and marketing, they only so many touches they can make on an individual consumer. So they're not going to waste a lot of their touches on things that don't sell. So that's the first thing considers. Amazon only cares about stuff that actually sells, and um, and makes them a good good profit, good bang for their buck. Now they, they sort of they know that like heavy book readers read a lot, so they're willing to give them some um, some additional email space. But even if we think about just the Amazon as a bookseller, if they're going to send an email out to you saying you should read these books, they're going to choose books that you're likely to buy, and not books that you're not likely to buy. Now, how does Amazon tell which books people are likely to buy? Well, they look at the sales history of a book. That's the really what it comes down to. Amazon doesn't care about your rank. They only care about your sales history. Um, and, and, well, they only care about your history, sales history and the other thing they care about, which is profitability. Um, they're much more likely to promote a book that's going to make them $2 or $3 and the book makes them $0.70, 70 or $0.65, cents, which is to say that they're, they, they don't as heavily promote in emails um, and their other channels 99 cent books. In fact, like if you go to, if you, so authors are always, always focused on the bestseller categories on Amazon. But if you actually try to browse Amazon as a reader and try and find those bestseller categories, you can't. The only way you can access them anymore is by going down and looking on the bottom of product page. Amazon promotes what they call their popular lists. And popular lists factor in price quite heavily, and popular lists also factor in conversion. Because what they really care about with any product that they show is if someone goes to the product page, do they click the buy button? And what percentage does this? Um, so, so knowing that, if you say, for example, you do a really long pre-order, a year-long pre-order, and you hardly sell any books through that year-long pre-order, all you do is train Amazon that your book doesn't sell. And, and that's your sales history that you've now established with Amazon. So if you do a shorter pre-order, like say, for example, you're going to get 1,000 pre-orders, just to make numbers easy, over 10 months, That's you know, say it's 100 a, a, a month. But say you can com- com- compress that 1,000 pre-orders into 30 days, now you're doing now. Now you're training Amazon that this book sells a lot, and the, the 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 visual that people get from that is they see their rank, they see the rank spike, because Amazon's um, calculation of rank is over thirty and fourteen days. But that's what the cliff's based on. It's just a math artifact. It's what the cliff is, but um, if you do that shorter shorter pre-order, you get the same number of pre-orders, which is actually kind of hard to do. But even if you got like half the pre-orders over one month. Um, you're training Amazon that you have a very good conversion rate and they're, and, and they're going to be more likely to put your book into emails. Um, and also to contact your, um, your followers because one of the things Amazon does as well. say you have a thousand people following your author name. Amazon doesn't email all of them when your book comes out. Amazon emails a chunk of them, determines how many of them buy. And if it's good, they email more. Because they're not going to blow their load on these on on on, a, on this thousand people if your book doesn't sell to any of them, because they can only contact readers so much. You know they can't write send an email with a thousand books listed They have to send an email with a curated list they think is going to sell. So they actually do these small little chunks, trying to see which ones are selling better, and then push those to more readers. So that's that's sort of the thing to consider when it comes to um, to how long you want to make your 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 ramp is how many readers can you actually cram onto that ramp. And if you have a billion readers, you can make that ramp really, really long. But the fewer readers you have, the shorter that ramp has to be so that you don't don't accidentally convince Amazon that your book doesn't sell.
0: It's funny because I'm doing this right now. I did a 2-week pre-order on my book one because I want to get the audiobook to try to come out at the same time. And that's actually a little longer than I would do because I don't want to ramp things up before it actually releases and before KU people can borrow it. Mm -hmm. So I'm like just kind of slowly starting to do a few ads trying to... Because I'm switching genres too. So that's always fun to to walk in. (laughs) From a space opera to urban fantasy, maybe that's my next question for you. What you would do because like the last six things I published were in space opera. So I'm going to be all screwed up with the also bots. And I have this with every release. I just have accepted it now. But Do you have any tips?
2: (laughs) Well, urban fantasy is the hardest genre to market to. So there's that. You, you picked a, a good I've one.
0: already seen that it's more expensive for the ads than like epic fantasy and space yeah. opera where I was like, Oh good, $2 one dollar problems, ads.
2: <laughs> one of the problem with, with urban fantasy from an ads perspective is it doesn't have a long, rich history. Like with, with space opera or sci-fi, you can advertise people who, who read Isaac Asimov books four years ago. Like you've got all these authors you can target, all this history that you can target when you're trying to find people. Urban fantasy really isn't that old. So you have like this... And, and the urban fantasy that say like Facebook knows about is tiny. So you have like this tiny, little, like little, little sliver of people you can market to, or that you can target, and, be, and, and so everybody's targeting the same things. It becomes more expensive to do that, which kind of sucks. Um,
0: so you think but, my launch is going to go really well? Is what you're saying?
2: <laughs> you're going to be okay, Lindsay. You know, I think, I think, you know, you're. I think authors that try to like genre hop on the same pen name to try and get an audience are making things really hard for themselves. But I think when you already have an audience, like you're going to get at least 20 to 30% of your audience is going to come over no matter what. So you've got a, you've got a good boost there that's going to help you out.
0: Alright. Well, we shall see. I'll have witnesses or <laughs> to watch. It's so great to do things in public, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. All right. So let me ask you, we wanted to segue into Facebook ads anyway, but I'm curious because I had a minute to think about this. Mm-hmm. With the people you're watching who do these big launches and sell their quarter million of books, I, for me, the ones I see are in pretty popular genres. I mm-hmm. feel like when you're in a smaller niche genre, you kind of have a little limit, more limited pool of people who could potentially buy and advertise to. Uh, I know you do like space op or you're kind of hard, hard sci-fi space yeah. stuff. Um, what do you think? Uh, is there more of a ceiling if you're in a
2: smaller niche? I think there is. Yeah. I mean, if you, to be, honest, to be, to be completely frank, most of the people that, that make seven figures on a launch are in romance or they're in thriller. Um, and romance, they do well because they have the, uh, the massive volume of readers. And thriller, they do well because they can charge a billion dollars per book. And for whatever reason, thriller readers will pay that. Like if you guys know, it's like the average thriller novel sells for $7 a pop. It's like twice as much money as you can as you can sell a sci-fi book for on average, so they you know they they can reach the same number of people and make twice as much money. So that helps them out. Um, but on the flip side, like sci- military science fiction is actually one of the largest um, sub subgenres out there. Um, however, military science fiction does a lot better in Ku, so it's harder to build up a pre-order ramp with it, um, which means you can't really advertise until it's out. Um, if you have if you're if you're more, if you're selling to a genre that has um, has more KU than than sales readers, so I feel. Shoot, I think I wandered off the question. What was the crux of your question?
0: <laughs> well, just I guess how much can people expect to sell oh, well. if they're in a smaller subgenre?
2: I mean, I, I think what you could probably do is you could you could simply look at what your what your rank is. Like, for example, to be say fifty in sci-fi, um, I saw about one hundred and fifty sales a day, and like maybe another hundred KU reads a day, give or take a bit. So. I mean, then the people that are number one in sci-fi are probably selling over a thousand books a day. Um, and, and so you could, I mean, that's your, that's, that's actually probably lowballing that this. Some the people who are doing really well in sci-fi might even be selling more than a thousand books a day. So if you think about it, that's still a pretty, you know, a thousand books a day at, at uh, 270 a book, if your book's 399 is still a pretty decent chunk of change. You know, that's, we're still talking like 2,700 books a day or dollars a day. And that's. Actually, not that far off from a million dollars a year. So I, f- so, I feel like you could actually pull that off. Now, could you pull it off of one book? Probably not, unless you've got like a big marketing engine and publisher behind you or something like that. But I feel like the average author could actually, um, you know, if you have a really good book and you market it really well, see actually really good returns off one book. Maybe not a million dollars, but maybe in, in smaller genres, you could maybe do a quarter million dollars off of one book. And, and I know authors personally in sci fi who have done that, who have made quarter million dollars off of one book. In, in one year. So it, it is a thing that can be done. It's certainly harder, though, but it can be done.
0: Right. And that's not to say that just if you write in a popular genre, it's going to be so easy because there's a lot of competition, too, then of yeah. course.
2: Yeah. And you can almost make an argument that you can do better in a smaller genre. I mean, like, I write like a, a really niche thing. I write hard military science fiction with female leads. Um, and some of, my, some of my casts are almost entirely female. I'm trans. You know, so like, <laughs> and I and I write in a in a in a um a male-dominated readership um, genre as well, like military science fiction, hard science fiction. So you think that I shouldn't do well at all, but in some respects, I do really well because I'm I've written in such a niche that I'm like one of the few people providing a lot of content in that niche, which which ends up helping me.
0: Yeah, I actually did better with my sci-fi that had a female protagonist versus a male protagonist. And I feel like this is kind of an underserved niche because there are certainly women who enjoy sci-fi and want to see female
2: leads. Yeah, and they want to see female leads that are, are written like women who don't look to men. Like if you read a lot of a lot of this isn't to say anything bad about men, but it's just it's just so much fiction, especially science fiction throughout the years, has never featured women in, in a lot of command roles. Yes, yes, there are examples out there, but they're not that common. And so when women can can get their hands on science fiction where the female lead, you know, is her own person and never has to look to to a man for advice or be rescued by a man, they're really excited to get that content and they and they stick with it.
0: All right, well, let's go to Facebook ads so our thriller and romance authors won't be bored about sci-fi chat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I brought it up, I think, but. Um, so I guess what, we'll refer to the previous podcast too, because you talked a lot about um, some beginner stuff. But for someone who's maybe struggled with Facebook ads, getting the clicks to be reasonable, targeting, what would you recommend for um, just people trying to get the ball rolling?
2: I feel like it's, it's really important to um, I mean, invest the time in really working on your descriptions, really working on headlines, which is like the text that goes below the image, and really spend some time finding images, and you might end up having to spend a couple of days um, working on 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 blurbs, on um, on finding the right images, and then you might end up spending like a couple of weeks actually trying to find ones that really work. Um, <clears throat> there's no real easy button for Facebook ads. However, Facebook has done something recently that's made it a lot easier to have Facebook find the good ads for you. The if you do campaigns, you can pick like an A/B test campaign. And they used to push that really hard but i don't recommend doing that now when you create your ads when you're in the ad set step you can choose to create a dynamic creative ad is what they call so toggle you can turn that on and once you have a dynamic creative when you're building the ad itself you can put in multiple images multiple descriptions and multiple pieces of headline text and facebook on the fly will figure out which ones are working better and will show that one to people and people a lot of times we'll get hung up with um, trying to find the one that works best, so they can just show that one. But that actually is a bad idea, because for example, something that I found back in my um, this must have been like 2009. I worked for a company called Kaspersky, the antivirus company, and that website that we ran for Kaspersky in the Americas was making something like $15 a second um, at a at a peak time, and we were really like figuring out exactly how to fine tune things. And one of the things we discovered was that people on the west coast clicked more on an orange Buy Now button, and people on the East Coast clicked more on a red Buy Now button. So we actually used real software that figured out where people were and showed them different colored buttons all over the website based on their geographical location. And we ended up making more money versus just trying to find the the one color that worked best. Facebook is doing the same sort of thing with these dynamic creative ads, saying, okay, people in this demographic are responding better to this image text combo and people in this demographic are responding better to this image-text combo. And it's showing the right people the right stuff at the right time. So using that works really well. And and my testing and testing I've done with other people, you can't, you can't pick a winner and get cost per clicks as low as Facebook will get for you if you let it do the dynamic creative thing. So that's something I would really recommend for people getting started is play, is use that dynamic creative, put up an ad, and just let Facebook do its magic. And you'll actually see a lot better results just from doing that.
1: That, that actually uh, uh, feeds pretty well into the question I was going to ask. Uh, uh, after we interview, interviewed you on, on the previous podcast, I picked up, helped my Facebook ad suck. I read it cover to cover, and I implemented an advertising plan. And then I, uh, uh, I sat on my hands for a couple of years and didn't actually do the advertising plan. <laughs> so uh, one of the one of fairly simple question I have here is, is that book still a useful resource or have things changed so drastically that, that maybe that information is is getting obsolete?
2: Um, there's a couple things in there that don't work anymore. And Facebook has changed their platform in a couple of places. So, uh, what I did is I recently released a new version of the book. Um, it was like December 6th. And it's available for free for anyone who wants to get it because I didn't want people to have, who had recently bought version one of the book to feel like I'm trying to build them out of money. So, if you go to our website for, for Jill and I have called thewritingwives.com, thewritingwives.com, the and click on our books you can get the second edition for free. At the top of each chapter, um, half of it's new and half of it is the is the prior information. So there's, it's, I, I took about 20 pages of stuff how to do a with Twitter because I don't think Twitter works that well for ads anymore. And then the book is actually effectively twice as long when it comes to Facebook content. Uh, at, t- at the top of each chapter, I note what's different in that chapter. So you can kind of skim through the first, I think the first seven or eight chapters, and I'll note what you should maybe pay attention to if you read the first book. And then all the chapters where it's all new, I say this is all new information and you can, you can dive into this. So that'd be a, probably a good way for, for folks who, who looked at the previous version. Another really neat thing, by the way, in Facebook now, um, that I think people should be taking advantage of a lot is um, Instagram ads. Because um, there's this interesting little thing with Facebook. We all know with Facebook, as if you've been as an author for a while Facebook, that pages don't work that well anymore. Because Facebook promotes stuff in your, in your regular feed a lot more than promotes stuff um, on your page. And so we all we have pages, we have groups, and we have our own personal feeds, it's kind of a mess. But Instagram still just has one thing. You just have one profile. And you can put um, your and your your personal profile is also your business profile. So you can any content that you put on Instagram that does well, and Instagram does everything by hashtags. So any content you does well, you put on Instagram that does well, people will like people like like mad on Instagram. They're just like little click happy people. Um, you can target all of those people with Facebook ads. It's like this one little little way to like sort of like make your Facebook business page reach out into your personal contacts a little more readily. So there's some fun things like that that you can take advantage of as well. If you have a good Instagram feed, you can specifically make Facebook ads that target anyone who's liked anything you've done on Instagram.
1: That sounds super useful. It's always interesting to like sort of get a new a new hose uh, and filling up the bucket, you know. Uh, another thing I, I want to know is like, and we talked a little bit about this too, but because advertising is so much of an art as well as a science, and sometimes you get massive differences from tiny tweaks, like you talk about the color of the button on a different coast. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there's like best practices that people can follow, but sometimes when you break from those common wisdoms, you find some weird thing that happens to work for you. And how should somebody like? Assess the success of, a, of an ad that maybe was a weird experiment, and see if it's worth continuing that experiment. Like, how? What sort of metrics should people be relying upon for the success of ads?
2: Well, I think there's a couple things to keep in mind. If you're trying weird and zany things um, along with a bunch of other things, it can be really hard to tell what's working or not because Amazon doesn't give us any real introspection into what's what things are converting. So. If you want to try wild and zany things, ideally you should try it in a book that you're not running other ads to so you can actually tell if it's working. Otherwise, you will just get lost in the noise. Um, and, if, and if you have no other marketing going to a book, that's pretty easy to tell if it's working. And your main two metrics are what's your cost per click on the ad? And then what's your actual, actual conversion? And by conversion, I don't mean what Facebook is saying is a conversion. I mean, is it selling at the retailer? Um, so that's, and, and like I said, that's so if you're only, if that's, if that, if anything you're trying is the only marketing you're doing to a given book, then you'll know if your conversions... and If you're selling more, then you know that, that the ad is working. Um And if your conversions aren't, it's not. Because one thing I think it's important is it's not just the click, the cost per click that matters. I could run an ad that says free ponies. And I'm going to get tons of clicks, and they're not going to cost that much. I'm not going to sell any books. Um, In fact, all I'm going to do is train Amazon that my product page doesn't sell. Because everybody's going to land my product page. Everybody's going to be like, where's my free pony? And they're going to close the fleet. So... um so that's that's something to keep in mind. So it is it is that combination of things: is my cost per clicks low, and am I actually selling the thing I'm trying to sell? And you can also use affiliate links to tell on Amazon if you're selling. You're not supposed to, but I keep telling people to do it. And no one's ever come after me, <laughs> so I'm gonna keep telling people to do it.
3: Yeah, I've not gotten in trouble, and I've been doing it since. Sh-
2: uh. 2011 2012 (laughs) make like between five and seven hundred dollars a month off affiliate links like it's it's worth doing
3: (laughs) yeah it's worth doing and then if they i mean if they shut us down then it's not like you know it's not going to kill us financially (laughs) exactly but every little penny helps you know absolutely okay so how long is i think you're the one um i didn't have time to listen to the old episodes i'm like So horrible. But I do remember listening to your last one on the last show. And I remember going, what? Because you were saying, I believe it was you who said, put long ad copy in, like Take a scene from the book, right? Was that you? Yes. And that worked really, really well for me for some of my books and then not as well for others because the scene I picked was not as great. (laughs) So have you found does it still work to have long ad copy? And how much do you experiment with it? And then also do you see and hear other authors having success with longer ad copy?
2: Yeah, I've actually the very first time so I've always written longer ad copy because I'm just I'm just wordy. Uh, and and people are always saying, like, write short ad copy, write short ad copy. And then I would look at my sales and they were better than that person's sales. So I'm like, well, I don't necessarily want to try what they're suggesting because they don't seem to do as well as I am. So that was my first clue that long ad copy works. Um another one that I that I, a clue I had was that people will comment in the comments on an ad, if your ad copy sucks they'll be like, wow, if the book is written like this ad, I'm certainly not going to buy this garbage You because know, people are so friendly and nice. And that's where I started to realize that people are actually judging the prose in your ad copy as though it's what they're going to be getting in the book. And that's when I realized, like, I don't want to be writing short, choppy ad copy. I want to be writing ad copy that really tells a story. About about um, you know in a way that I would I would tell a story to anyone else trying to convince by my book I want I want I want to convince you in person um, and I finally you just you just need a little more copy to do that now sometimes short copy does work because you really have something pithy and if you have a pithy thing you'll ruin it by making it too long you know you want to make it short and sharp and, and grab them and then and then lead them into your into your product page um,
1: and also if you're selling
2: on price you don't need long ad copy to sell on price like it's a, it's a sale. Go buy it. You don't need to make it long for that. But the one thing that sort of comes into play from a, an algorithmic standpoint from, uh, from on Facebook is that they consider any sort of interaction with your ad to be someone being interested in your ad. And when someone clicks that read more link, because your ad copy doesn't all fit on the screen, they count that as interaction with the ad. And they will then show your ad to more people and they'll charge you less money. So provided what you have above the fold, above the read more link doesn't suck, and people then click the read more link, that will actually help you. Um, with Facebook. It'll make your ad cost less money and shorter more people. So that can be really useful.
3: Yeah, I've noticed that on my end. I have my um, Facebook club... Cover your ears. (laughs) I've got more than one Facebook account. (laughs) And I know. (laughs) My personal account um, is the one that's under my legal name. And it's not associated with anything author. And that's where I've actually gone and liked all the different author pages. And then I just get all their ads to me. And I have noticed that if I get too many ads on random stuff like... Decitin and things like that, <laughs> baby stuff. Um, mm-hmm. If I find a book ad, all I have to do is click on the Read More, and I start seeing more book ads. And so that's yeah. been very helpful, actually, on my end for researching this is
2: why my entire Facebook feed is just cat It's all the it guys advertising me cat cats. It's
3: ridiculous. <laughs> that's
2: awesome. The internet has me pegged.
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so you write science fiction and nonfiction for authors. Um, how should an author's approach to Facebook ads change according to the genres
2: they write? Sorry, I was reading the chat and got distracted there. <laughs> so
1: was
3: I. <laughs> I was reading the chat and wasn't even paying attention to the question I was asking. Lindsay, shame on you.
0: <laughs> okay, Now you have to tell them what I said. I just said I have an ad blocker, so I'm missing out on catsuits. I don't, I don't I, know yeah, what's going on. <laughs>
2: cat suits. I actually poison my friend's ads sometimes by showing them certain things and getting them to click them.
3: <laughs> That's so evil. Okay, I will ask the question again. And I'll pay attention better this time too, <laughs> okay, so um you write science fiction and nonfiction for authors. Um, how should authors approach Facebook ads change according to the genres they write? I mean, would like a romance author do the long ad copy i mean how what have you seen and heard?
2: Um, well I think romance you know there's there's a couple different types of romance um, it's It's such a massive genre that it's, it doesn't do it justice to try and comp- compare it down to just say romance but I think uh, a lot of like there's there's for example there's, there's a whole big segment of romance short reads it's it's basically like um, I hate to compare it to like porn because it's not or, or go ahead go ahead compare it to so, porn <laughs> all <right>. so like, <laughs> like, like a lot of a lot of, for guys who want to who watch porn visually they want like a specific thing they want to see a specific thing and that's what kind of gets them their fix for a lot of women who love romance, um, and this is not to say that romance is bad because I have no issue with porn. You want to watch to, romance to, to get your female porn fix, you know, go for it. Um, but they really want certain tropes and they want a short read. And there's this whole genre of short read romance. It's like 55 pages long. It's built for like 3.99. and, and their whole shtick is you got to hit the tropes, the right words with the right tropes in the shortest space as possible. And that's actually what works the best for them. They're basically, and they they even spell it. They're like, "Look, you're going to get this, 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 and this in this book." And then they just come out and say it. And and that's that's basically what works for them. So if they're trying to try and write some sort of really long um, bit of prose to lead someone in. That's not what the reader looking for. You know, the reader is reading this story to get this specific fix. Um, and that's and so they market specifically for that. And if they were to make it too long, I think they would probably ruin it. So there are some scenarios where I think long doesn't work. But if you're writing epic fantasy, yeah, you don't want to, You really want to show them like I can, I can write something wrong, hold your attention for something long. Like you, you, actually kind of want to sell what the book is. Um, another angle that you can do, and this one's actually one of my best performing ads right now, is I have an ad that says why I wrote the book. That's what the whole ad's about. Like I, it just talks about how I, um, I saw a certain type of character being portrayed on television. Um, and a lot of times I didn't like the way they were portrayed, but I saw someone do it well, and I decided I want to write a story like that. And so I created this character, and here's what she means to me, here's why I think you should read it. And it doesn't talk about the plot in the book at all. It just talks about why I wrote the book. So, um, and, and it's not what I'm trying to make a personal connection to the reader, and um, try to entice them to think that, you know, to think that I might share some sort of values with them and whatnot. So that was longer as well for that reason, because I'm trying to convince them to be have shared values, and they should then read the book that I write. So. There's a lot of different sort of scenarios depending on what kind of connection you want to make with the reader that, that will affect put an option to be long or not. But I do feel like, on average, longer is better. You know, size does matter.
3: Yeah, you do make a good point. I mean, that's something about because I write romance on the side, kind of, I haven't done it for a little, a couple of years, but I have found that, I mean, those readers do, they read for the trope. So if you tell them in your description, I mean, you tell me your ads, things like that, exactly which trope they can expect, then, I mean, things are going to be a lot more successful. And I'm going to hand things off to Liz, Lin, Lizzy, <laughs> Lindsay
0: verbally. I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. I was, uh, just watching uh, cat suits on Facebook. So, oh, really? no, no. <laughs> I've had that experience though, where your whole ads get screwed up on Amazon or something because some friend link <laughs> give you a link to something funny or interesting. Uh, but um, we wanted to ask a couple of listener questions from our Facebook group, mm-hmm. uh, also on Facebook ads. Before we have a few more questions at the end, just more general marketing, since you also have the marketing book coming out. Um, but Matt asks for wide authors, what's the best place to link to in Facebook ads? Is it better to link to my US ads to Amazon because I sell better there or Kobo for my Canadian ads or link to my website that links to all stores?
2: So there's a couple of different ways you can do it. Um, I, and I, I was wide for about a year and a half until I eventually went back in. And, and my reasons for not being wide were very specific to what I'm writing. Um, and the way I'm creating my universe would be a whole other topic about universe building. To go into that, but I actually had a lot of success with Kobo. Um, Kobo and Barnes and Noble actually were really good for me, um, and I couldn't get any traction with iTunes and um, and Google. But what I found as I was doing it is that when a reader reads on Kobo or a reader reads from another country, they really feel a lot better um, about ads that take them directly to the content for their country or their reader. They uh, People who don't, who don't read on, Am- on Amazon really have um, a mistrust of marketing that's being delivered to them, thinking that, oh, it's going to take me to Amazon again. I hate Amazon. I, I only read on Kobo. Or, or you know I, I'm in Canada and it takes me to U.S. links. So I'm a very firm believer in giving people links for where they are right in the app. Um, and I do this in my emails even. My emails for every book I sell have links for every country. On Amazon, because I don't I want people to know, like, oh, if I'm in the UK, here's the UK link. I don't have to jump through hoops to try to get to the UK. So, when I ran ads um, for, for different places, and, and I'll talk about Kobo, that's where I did the best. I actually had like three to four books in the top 10 sci fi on Kobo for a year and a half. Um, I linked to Canada. I ran Canada ads, um, ads to Canadians linking to Kobo's um, Canada website, and I also did one for the UK. So I would run separate UK ads, separate um, CA ads, and I would link them to the correct book on the correct store directly. And that's one of the ways I did really well by doing that. And I was able to adjust my my spend and everything. Is um, if you know the UK one was doing better, I could put more money into that. Canada was doing better, I could put more money into that. And that was the thing that worked the best. Um, I I have used a lot of like things like um, like books to read and Genius Links and Bitly and whatnot. But a lot of, a lot of businesses actually block those redirect uh, services. So you can end up with people you're showing your ad to that just simply can never get to it, and you're also like relying on another business in the middle to be up and running and functional. And I've had a couple of times where over the the last six or seven years, where things like Bitly were down for like a day or two, um, or or things or other other services that do redirects were down, or like my website was down for a day. Like I was one time I was on vacation, and my website was down for two days, and I dropped five hundred dollars on ads that linked to a down website, you know, and I just don't want to have to worry about that sort of thing. So I believe that the the, the retailer is the one that's most invested in making sure their site stays up. So I always link directly to the retailer. Um, And that's because I know that if Amazon goes down, they're going to fix it as quickly as humanly possible, you know, type of thing. So I feel like that's that's the better way to go. And I think it makes the reader just sort of trust what's happening more.
0: All right, good to know. So yeah, you can definitely do different ads targeting different geographic locations and just making (laughs) sure you're showing them the right... Link. <laughs> okay. Vanya asks, can you go into a little bit more about choosing an audience? I do some ads that barely get any impressions or engagement, and I think it's because my audience isn't on target, especially since not all authors are available to be targeted on Facebook.
2: Yeah, building audiences is is, is a huge topic for Facebook, um, and it's, it's probably it's the hardest part of Facebook ads is audience building. Um, one thing you gotta keep in mind when you're building an audience on Facebook is Facebook will give you this number of what size your audience is. Um, like they might say it's like a million people, but that million people includes people who log on to Facebook once a month, um, you know, or something like that. When that person who logs into Facebook once a month logs on, Facebook chooses what ads to show them, Facebook's gonna show them Chevy trucks and MacBooks. They're not gonna show them your novel. because um, people like Chevy and, and Apple are willing to pay like 10 bucks a click type of thing. So if Facebook's gonna show those people ads, they're gonna make Facebook more money. Author us. Authors, our ads are like at the bottom of the barrel. We're the ones that get shown after everything else is gone. Um, or you know, if you only ever click on author ads, it's all they're going to show you. But you got to keep that in mind. That audience numbers in reality is a lot smaller. So if you have an audience that is like like in in the five digit range, Facebook might be struggling to try and find people to actually show your ad to who are actually on Facebook. So you do want to have that number be bigger. Um, <clears throat> and certain genres, like for example, urban fantasy, it's really hard to target authors. Um, like, you know, you're all going to be targeting the same people um, or Dresden, you know, or something like that. Um, but the, the couple ways around that. One is to think about stuff that you might read personally that is similar, um, that may not be completely in the genre if you need to expand it or to go to television. And, um, and because when you in Facebook, when you're building an audience, you can choose to narrow that audience. So what I typically do now is I actually build an audience that is um, a whole bunch of TV shows in one block. And then i'll do another block that's a whole bunch of authors and i will do another block and these are also like narrow so it's all these, one of these tv shows one of these authors and then also another block that's like amazon kindle ebooks and stuff like that to make sure people are actually readers and that's how i can get a much larger audience and i can also get people that are more t- more, more on point like they they like consuming this genre in tv and books so i know they're, they're really into it that's a good way to get a bigger audience and it really just comes down to size also um, the bid cap strategy will probably will also cause this. So Facebook gives you the option to like set a bid cap where I won't spend more than X per bid. And a lot of times, that's just a death knell for an ad. If you set that, they'll just never show it to anybody because they're much more happily to show ads that they can charge whatever they want. So um, you're, it's, it's a way of playing it safe, but unfortunately, it, it just oftentimes causes your ads to never be shown. The better way to play it safe is just make an ad and watch it for a couple of days to make sure it doesn't go nuts. Don't put a bid cap on. Just put like a daily spend cap on.
0: I feel like if you don't go in there and fiddle with the bids, suddenly you're spending $1 or $2. <laughs> like, that seems to be
2: the default. Maybe it's just me. Like, never, I have to go. <laughs> I've never spent $1 or $2 per click on an ad. <laughs> oh man. I mean, you, you might see like right when an ad is brand new, like you, refer, like you might have 1 or 2 clicks that are that high as Facebook's trying to figure it out. But usually those don't last more than a day. By, by then usually. All
0: right. It's usually, you know, I, I default to boot, boosted posts sometimes, and you're just oh, like, you yeah, have... spend my hundred bucks, <laughs> and that's where I'm like, oh boy, I should have gone in and like set The
2: problem with the boosted posts and people make this mistake a lot is that Facebook um, shows you a different number for your results. So they say here's your cost per result, not cost per click. And you'll also, if you, when you're creating a campaign, if you choose um, an engagement campaign versus a traffic campaign, they'll also show you cost per result. But the result is like an image click or they click the more link or something like that, or they click off to your author page, Facebook considers that to be a result. So when you actually go and look at your cost per click on a boosted post, it's usually astronomical. You're like, dear God, I'm paying like $7 per click or something like that. I actually had, I had a friend who was using engagement ads and she's like, look, I'm, I'm doing really well with my engagement ads. I'm, I'm getting a, a result of, of like 15 cents. I'm like, no, that's, that's the wrong thing. And she went and turned on the option where you can see unique clicks and she was literally spending $7 a click.
0: So, right. Well, and then Vanya was asking about that too, if you could just clarify and you kind of half answered this, the difference between an ad and a boosted post. Sure. Yeah. And, yeah.
2: yeah. And was, so a boosted post is just you put a post on your page and you get the option to boost it. And like I said, the problem is that Facebook treats a boosted post more like engagement. Uh, so they sort of just spam it around as much as humanly possible, but they're not really focused on clicks. And Facebook knows who's likely to just sort of like play with content and who actually will click off to the destination. So when you try to do something that's just for engagement, they're just like, we don't care. We're going to take a group of people who never click on and we're going to show this to them so we can get money. But when you say that I want to get clicks to my destination, then they show it to people who are actually more likely to buy stuff. Because Facebook knows who buys stuff and aka clicks off to retailer sites and who just like likes images and makes them bigger and, and comments and stuff like that. So they, they, they'll be smart about who they show it to to make the most money off of you.
0: All right. Well, I will stop being so lazy and do fewer boosted posts because, let's face it, that's when you do it. You're like, eh, that doesn't a- go. <laughs>
2: I'm guilty of it too, you know. But I would never do a hundred dollars. That's just yikes. <laughs> uh, so
0: such a bad bad influence to our listeners. <laughs> um, so let's move on to a few just more general marketing questions Besa- beyond Facebook ads. What are you doing right now in uh, 2020 here? That is working for marketing?
2: So, I do. Um, one of the things I'm doing a lot of in the last year or so is really working on building my brand um, beyond just individual books or individual series. I have a, a universe I've created called Aon14 that has about 90 books in it. And um, and I decided that one of the things I really want to focus on is actually doing, doing, ed, doing marketing activities, actually, just make, make people aware of Aon14 and not necessarily me and not necessarily a book. I first got the idea when I was... I had a booth at Boston Comic Con last year. And what I found is that people were walking past my booth and they were just saying like, Aeon 14, I've never heard of that. And they would just keep walking. I'm like, crap, I need to make people actually aware of of Aeon 14 as much as I need to make them aware aware of my book. So that's a big thing I'm doing. And I've sort of also created this brand, which for me is a ton of fun, where I'm I'm like, people have actually introduced me as the cat suited author at some events recently. And that's kind of a fun thing too, where I get to like kind of go out and be in costume all the time and, and make that part of my brand, which I'm enjoying a lot as well. So for me, it's a really big branding year. And I want to do that in an effort to um, eventually start working on other IP, like TV, and movies, and stuff like that. Uh, so by the end of this year, I should have um, a, uh, an RPG, a tabletop RPG released. I should have a bunch more audio coming out. Um, and I'll have actually done a lot, of, a lot of sort of larger, more in-person appearances, too, that, that um, I'm working on.
3: Awesome. Um, and you've kind of already answered this question just a little bit, kind of Walking around it, but um, we talked about book launches. Uh, What do you do in between launches? Um, Where do you put your focus when it comes to advertising, including and outside of, including Facebook and outside of Facebook?
2: So I do a couple different things when I don't. I mean, my I have launches at least once a month, so I don't have very long gaps between launches. But I do um, a couple different things to try and bolster that. One of them is um, box sets are a really big part of my strategy where um, everything, every series, once it gets to um, five books, gets a box set of one through three. And then that one through three box set, I do a lot of work to um, market that. And I'll, I'll leave it usually at 99 nine ninety nine, but I'll periodically drop it all the way down to $0.99 cents and do a big push to try and get it going. Um, and then I'll bring it back up to two ninety nine and let it sit there for a while. And then as I start to lose steam, I'll bring it back up to ninety nine ninety nine, and then I'll cycle a new box set through that process. Um, something I'm doing right now is I took a series that wrapped up in January of 2019, it's a seven-book series. Um, which, if I was to sell all seven books individually, I make I make thirty-five dollars. But I decided to try to do something crazy. I put all seven books into one box set, and I released it for ninety-nine cents. Um, and I did that specifically because I wanted to try and drive rank up really high, so that I would get I would get more visibility um, by getting an orange tag. Because I do think that the one place where rank does matter is to get the orange tag, because um, that shows up a pop where people are making a purchase decision, and that helps. But I don't think that um, the rank helps in any other scenario, but I want to try and get an orange tag to maintain that. And I actually managed to maintain some fashion of orange tag on this book for about about seventy days. Um, and in doing so, I think I made um, an additional like twenty five thousand dollars off of this book that you know a series that would have been wrapped up a year before. So I'm doing more stuff like that where I'm taking stuff content that I already have, packaging it in a new way and trying to find a new audience with that is a it's a pretty big part of it. And then um, the other thing I'm doing is all is is this focus on audio, where I'm going to try and do more more audio ebook simultaneous releases in an effort to get high get more people listening to my audio and then try and work on my audio backlist from there.
1: Okay, um, so for a lot of people, uh, time is at least as much of a as of a bottleneck as money is, and obviously. As with anything that needs to be done well, lots of time needs to be done to do marketing well. Are there marketing tactics that have a better bang for buck in terms of time, uh, as opposed, you know, how do those to stack up?
2: Sure, I mean, I think I think one of the things that you can get the best bang for your buck from is AMS ads um, from a time perspective. I think AMS ads are hard to screw up um, and don't really. I mean, they they may not make you a ton of money, but they're also things that aren't going to lose you a lot of money because they're only ever shown to people who read books. So, you, and they're only showing people who are currently looking at books. So, it's kind of a great way to make sure that you're, you're really focused on the right people um, at the right time. Um, so, from, from that standpoint, you can use like KDP Rocket, get yourself a giant um, list of keywords, make a couple dozen um, AMS ads in one day, and probably forget about them for like six or seven months. Um, is is That's actually how I do my AMS ads <laughs> by and large. I look at them a couple times a year at this point. Um, I think it's also important to try and if you have a, a, lot, a huge backlist, to try and focus on one or two series um, and try and focus on series that will feed into other ones well. But don't try and like advertise everything all the time to everybody. Try and like really put your steam behind one or two things and go, get those to work well. And then also, if you can get Facebook ads that work really well, like an ad that works really well, um, run it for as long as you can. And then if it starts to peter out, find a new audience for that ad. Don't just kill off the ad and try and do a new one. Just find a new audience or switch countries. If you're showing that ad to the US, switch it to the UK for a couple of weeks and just show it to the UK and then maybe bring it around to Canada and Australia. And then by then it's three or four months, you could bring it back to the US and it'll sort of it'll be a little bit fresh and might hit new people and stuff like that. So that's a way to get a little more bang for your buck out of stuff without constantly going through this grind of trying to create new ads all the time.
0: That's a good point about ads getting kind of tired or if they you know you've been sharing the same book for like nine months as I have with my Space Opera series book one, you know, it's a lot easier to if you have a new book, you know, maybe turn that one off for a little while and then, mm-hmm. then it's like a new book when you come back and start advertising it again next year.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you might even be able to go, go through ads you ran a year or two ago and bring some of them back, you know, without having to go in and spend a lot of time making new ones. So from a from bang for buck, I think that's that's a great thing to do. I also think like another thing that works really well so it's still is still on newsletter swaps with other authors. They're free. They don't take that long to do and, and they can they can help.
0: Especially if they're really closely linked to you in, in the genre you want to be in They're also bots because look they're like they're writing the same stuff.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah don't don't swap with authors that will ruin your also bots. That's a thing not to do. But right. if you ruin your also also bots then go for it.
0: So marketers like to throw out the term like getting people into your funnel. Could you talk about what that is and how it applies to authors?
2: Sure. I th- something and this is something I'm, I talk a little bit about this in my current Facebook book. So this is just the, the Facebook book, uh, and I'm going to be talking about it more in the, the general marketing strategies book. Is that people take more than one touch to to make a purchase. Like if you see an ad for a new phone or a new car or a new pair of jeans, you don't buy it the instant you see the first ad. Usually you have to see it a couple of times. You have to be convinced um, that this is the thing you're going to want to buy. This, uh, and so that's what's, what, they, what they talk about in the funnel. is They're saying like, the top of your funnel is really big. And you're just trying to grab as many people as you can and shove them into your funnel. Um, and not I mean, not all of them are going to make it down to the next level, and that's okay. At the next, but at the next level, these people are a little bit self-curated. Um, if they're still interested in your product or they're still they're still going to engage with you in some way, that um, you know that they, they already have some sort of intrinsic interest and the, the chaff has sort of fallen off. And and the, the more expensive your product is, the longer your funnel needs to be. Like you're selling a $100,000 product. You've really got to work them a long time before they're going to drop $100,000. Whereas a 99 cent book, your funnel might just be like two steps long. Like, you know, show them my ad once on Instagram and show them my ad again on Facebook. And then hopefully they'll lie at that point. Um, okay. That's, that's what they talk about when they talk about a funnel is, is, is narrowing down this this um, this potential group of buyers to the ones who will actually buy your book and something I do and I think I talked about this one of prior times is I try and find cheap ways um, of getting people to the top of the funnel and one of those things is, is using ads on things like Pinterest um, other things are things that don't don't cost you any money at all um, which which could be doing Facebook live videos when you do Facebook live videos Facebook loves video and you'll notice that you get this little pop up on the bottom of your screen when someone is live. It's like, this person's live right now. It shows a little video of them and you're like, ooh, exciting, it's moving, and you click it. Um, that's a great way to to get people into your funnel um, on the cheap. And if you do, you can do Facebook Live videos on your page or as yourself as your author and try and, try and drive people into, um, into a funnel. And the neat thing about when you do Facebook Live videos on a page is you can specifically target people who watched like 3 seconds of that video and then show them an ad. So there's ways of like, you know, they, they, you touch them for free, which sounds terrible when you say it like that, um, by by showing them this Facebook Live video, which could be you like reading from your book, it's free, you know, the story, you know, if you're all comfortable being on camera, so we could all do it. And then anybody who watched three seconds of your live video, now you can show them another ad. And they're going to remember like, oh, yeah, you know, Mal was reading something and here's her book, you know, right in front of me, I'll click on that. And, and you can you can guide them through these steps. And as you. As you um, sort of use up the low-hanging fruit, you'll need to do that more and more. You know, as as you as, the better you do, the more you have to do to try and make sales because all the low-hanging fruit is already already purchased the easy way, and now you've got to try to do some other stuff. But I do like ways of even if you don't have the money right now to do a big advertising campaign, doing something like Facebook Live videos and just doing them regularly for like the next year or so. Next year when you've got a couple of books out and you've got a little bit of a budget, you can actually go back and target everybody over the last year to watch those live videos and now use them as an audience to show them more things. So there's lots of neat ways like that that you can go out and, and for low money or no money, actually start building audiences that you can market to later.
3: See, these are really great ideas. And I'm sitting here listening and going, I think I'm gonna feed my kids today. Because <laughs> it just overwhelms me so much thinking about you know, all the different things. I mean, I used to do Facebook Live, you know, and I absolutely loved that. That was a lot of fun. But just having a baby and I'm like, I can't, I just can't do it anymore.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's, there's a, that's a, and that's actually one of the reasons why Jill and I started making the launch book. We're like, we're forgetting all this stuff we should be doing all the time. You need a checklist. We need like someone to tell us what to do. Which unfortunately is us, but... Yeah. All
3: right. Yeah. No kidding. And and I mean and just and I think I like represent all the people, all of our listeners who are currently panicked all the time because <laughs> that's kind of the state of my life right now. But I mean, things do calm down eventually, and you know, I should be able to start up live videos again. But I mean, I didn't know that they let you do that—that that you could retarget people who watch them. And this is like on your fan page, right?
2: Yeah, this be on your page. Yeah, videos are the only thing on Facebook where you can specifically target people who interacted with a specific piece of content. It's like the only thing. And if you if you get the, the second edition of the ads book, um, I actually have the steps all diagrammed in there how you go through and do what I just what I just mentioned. So that's one of the things I think is really important in the funnel. And, I, and in that book, I talk a little bit too about how you can build a funnel and with multiple steps in it. And I, I focus as well on making as cheap as possible because if the steps all cost you a lot of money, your profit goes down. So you want to try and make especially that big step at the top be as cheap as possible for you to, to do.
3: Yeah. So listeners... Um, there's like this book that you can grab either for free or i think it was like 4.99 <laughs> on yeah, amazon so yeah um let's see what was my question um okay so i i asked you earlier about audiobooks and print and i'm going to guess the answer for print is going to be not much but how much advertising do you do for your audiobooks and your print when you're not launching
2: um so i do i do nothing for print i won't, uh, well i do so, actually I do a little bit for print in that i, um, I run an etsy store and I also have an art book. A lot of my readers um, said to me, they're like, you know, you have all this great art, but I, I buy, I get the things in black and white, you know, on my Kindle. I never see the, the art. And I don't want to buy a bunch of books and have them on my bookshelf. So I've made an art book with all my covers and it actually been talked about, like, why we pick certain things and has images of the photo shoots and whatnot. So I do market that one from time to time. I put it on sale and I tip it out to my readers. And also, when I get a new book available on my Etsy store where they can get signed copies, I'll market those. But I don't market the retailers. Um, I market me selling them directly because I make way more money when I do that. Like I, my art book costs me um, 11, it's 84 pages full, co- full color um, at eight and a half by 11. And it costs me like $12 per book off of Ingram. And I sell it for 30, you know, and and the buyer pays shipping. So I'm making $20 a book. So, you know, you can do pretty well off of that. Um, <clears throat> and then audio, what I do for that is I actually use, I use MailChimp. And in Mailchimp, you can like track who clicks on certain links and segment them. So whenever I pimp audiobooks, I track who clicked on the audio links. And I've got a separate sort of segment of my audience, actually, that I know clicks on links for audio. And then whenever I have a new audiobook come out, I actually hit them a little bit more with it. I include my regular emails, but they get a couple extra emails for it as well. And then the other thing I do is I make use of those codes and the free links you get for audiobooks. Because you get paid for those, which is really important. People people don't know that when you get when you give people the links to go and get your audiobook for free, Audible or ACX pays you for that purchase of that book. Because they're basically I think it's because the reporting sucks so badly that they can't tell if it was a legitimate pay or not, so they just give you the money. So, and and that's like drives your rank up because if you get like 25, 50 codes, you can get you can get a lot of codes. So you can you can basically guarantee yourself like twenty five to fifty sales of your audiobook on launch day. And you get paid for it, so it's sort of a no-brainer to go and do that.
1: So I can't yeah. do much. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so I, I got one more question, uh, and it is like we talked a lot about how, like you know, we, we're going to be mastering tactics, and there's a lot of tactics. Like Facebook, uh, as long as you kept with its evolution, it continues to be a really useful advertising tool. But every now and then, a new advertising tool comes along, uh, and like we learned that Instagram has got some really good use and stuff like that. Uh, how much time should we like? Should well, how much effort should we? should we devote to trying the new thing? Because it seems like you really get rewarded for being at the, at the front of the wave of a new thing, and then it rapidly diminishes in value. So like, should we be on the lookout for the, the, the brand new tactics? Um, I mean, it's, that depends, I guess, on how much time you
2: have. I think that looking at the market share of, uh, of a particular um, tool matters. Like people... This was something always bugged me. People are like, audio is the fastest growing way to consume books. And it's like, yeah, it went from. 1% to 2%. it doubled. That's huge growth. But it's still just 2%, right? And so sometimes people get really excited about stuff. They're like, TikTok and WhatsApp and um, Snapchat are huge. And you're like, well, you know, they, you can't even see them on a pie chart next to Facebook. So even if you're doing amazing on Snapchat, you might not really be doing that good compared to what the same amount effort would do on Facebook. So I think it really is important when you're looking at a new thing to look at the audience that it serves and determine if the audience is big and correct, because percentages can be very misleading sometimes when people talk about fast is growing and, and whatnot. Um, but I do think it does make sense to look at what new social media tools are coming around, um, because you can do ads on TikTok and Snapchat now. Um, and if your if you're readers are the kinds of people that are on TikTok and Snapchat, I think that actually could be a really good thing to do. Um, another thing that I think is, is um, people, I'm going to be working on this through, throughout this year, and I'll, I'll, Probably have a book or some talks about it, but at your peril, ignore Reddit uh, or ignore Reddit at your peril. Reddit is the second largest social media platform in the world now, um, and they support ads, and um, and people are now a little more receptive to ads. And Reddit first came out; if you put ads on Reddit, they would just laugh at you and never buy your stuff. But Reddit ads are actually working on Reddit now, so I think um, people need to. I think everybody should actually use Reddit because I think you can't you can't advertise well on a platform unless you're a user of that platform because you don't know what it's like you don't know what the what the other end of the screen is doing kind of thing so I think people really should look at the market share of these different products and, and get into it because even though reddit has like reddit has like 1.5 billion users um, but it doesn't have a big ad um, population yet so this is this is still that good time to get in on reddit
3: I um, just barely dipped my toe into Reddit I've got a gaming channel on YouTube and I was like you know what my audience is a lot on Reddit but I'm not there as an author I'm there as a gamer so yes.
2: And you should um, claim your subreddit, you know. So sorry, what was that? You should also claim your subreddit so no one else does.
3: I don't even know what a subreddit is
2: really. He, <laughs> it's like he, below. <laughs> remember when we were all younger, we all went on bulletin boards, on forums and stuff like that? A subreddit is just a board. It's just, okay. a, just a board and a forum.
3: So you claim your subreddit for yourself as an author. You can actually yeah. do that.
2: Yeah, oh. it's like my, my series is called Aeon Fourteen, so R slash A on fourteen is mine and I own it, not someone else. So yeah, it's good to try and get that yourself before someone else does.
3: That's a great idea because there's this musician named Andrea Pearson, and she and I are like cutthroat with each other. <laughs>
2: you can watch out for her. She's, yes. she's coming for your software. She's probably already got it. She's got to go check now.
3: No, she's got YouTube. She's got you know everything on YouTube. But I'm like, I've got everything everywhere else because I've been doing it longer than she has. She's cuter than me, but
2: <laughs> i don't believe it. <laughs>
3: um, so we have like three thousand hundred questions on Facebook for you on our in our Facebook group. Um oh so if if you're a listener of the show, you can uh, um, apply to join <laughs> and then answer those if you feel like it. <laughs> but sure. I'm gonna ask one question by Sally Rigby. She wants to know about the merchandise you sell and how it all works.
2: Sure. Well, I do merch. Um, I used to do it on Society Six because they were they were easy to use and um, and they had a lot of products, but Society Six gives you like almost no money from selling things, and you can't set your own prices. So I, I had, in the meantime, also set up an Etsy store because that's where I decided I wanted to sell my books. And I, I worked in e-commerce for so long that the idea of maintaining e-commerce on my own website just made me sad inside. I wanted someone else to handle all of that stuff. So I um, I decided to use Etsy for that because Etsy I figured like they're kind of handmade, so I can get away with selling them on Etsy. And so far, I haven't gotten any, in, in any 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 flack for doing it. Um, and Etsy also integrates with a lot of the other services. So once I got a bunch of my books up on there. I was also able to use other servers called Printful and Printful lets you make like t-shirts, leggings, coffee cups, calendars, throw rugs, all sorts of stuff like that. And you can brand it however you want. Um, and they even have tools where you can make some stuff like you can upload your logo and like, like do it all right in their UI, build your t-shirts and stuff like that. And you connect it to Etsy. It puts your shirts or whatever on Etsy. And then when someone buys that stuff, Etsy, con- Etsy takes the money, contacts Printful and Printful ships it. And then notifies the the customer through Etsy that it's been shipped, and you don't have to do anything. So we've got some some of the stuff doesn't go so well. Some of the stuff does. We have this one cat called Mister Fizzlepop in one of our series, and Mister Fizzlepop's a real jerk. He calls everybody asshole, and when he talks in the books, it's all caps all the time because that's obviously how a cat would talk, right? And he's just always demanding food, Um, and so uh, he's always like, "Feed." We have this we have this coffee cup that says "Feed me asshole" on it. It's got this cat kind of pawing out or something like that. And we sell, we, we make like $5 a coffee cup. And sometimes we sell more of those cups than we sell books in that series. And so it's just like, wow, we're just like basically making double the money with these coffee cups. It's, it's just kind of golden. So it's, it's pretty cool how well that works. And, and I, I do believe in trying to do things that take as little effort as possible because shipping stuff sucks. You know, so, so having, using something like Printful and Etsy where it's all integrated, you create the product and then it just goes is definitely the way to go.
0: All right. Well, I feel like since Andrea kind of teased Facebook questions, we should ask one more from the group before wrapping up. Okay. If you're game. Um, Jeff was just curious to know what your opinions are on the different types of ads on Facebook, specifically video and carousel image ads.
2: I think that um, so carousel image ads, they get me all the time when they're, show- when they're showing me a whole bunch of cats and leggings and stuff like that. I'm like oh this one's nice and I'll scroll over and keep looking through them all and stuff like that. And I think they work really well for that kind of product where you have a bunch of products they're all in the same vein um, and you and you're trying to sell them out of the catalog. If you write in a series, I don't think it's gonna work quite as well because you're like I could show you book one, two, and three, but I just want you to focus on book one. And one of the things in in, in selling is that you want to give people as few as few options as possible to click on on. And if the only thing you really want them to do is buy book one. Just show them book one. Now maybe you have like two or three series, and you'd want to show those two or three series in a carousel. You could try that, but I think that from what we're doing, when we really want to focus on selling one book, that doing things, um, doing carousel doesn't work as well. I think the video ads do work partially because they Facebook seems to show them more for less money, and because you get to retarget them later. Um, Facebook actually has some good tools now for making videos on the fly, so you can upload a couple of covers. For your series. And you can actually have it like just slideshow between the covers or do crossfades and stuff like that. And Facebook just makes that a video. And then you can put that up as a video with like only like five minutes of effort made put into making it. Um, and then you can use that for retargeting later on. So I think video actually is a really good thing to do. But don't spend a lot of money on video until you've really nailed ads because some people out there will charge you like 50 to like $250 to make yourself a video. And then it does nothing, you know, because you screwed something up. And if you do decide you want to make videos where you like, have a bunch of text on the video two sentences pops don't put your whole blurb in there don't write some sort of big long thing two sentences pop watch movie trailers and tv trailers for your genre and see how many words they put um, in, in those videos and don't go over that those people have really thought about the, the length and the number of words you should be showing in a video
0: all right. Well, thank you so much for staying for well over an hour. We're trying to be like Joe Rogan podcast. We're going to start having guests for like three hours, you know, and <laughs> you, you have to bring house? food. I think so. Those are long. <laughs> I, brought, I
2: brought food, but I didn't actually have any of it. I was just, you know,
0: it's hard when you're talking to be like, let me just have some. You know, wine works. Our guests yeah. always bring wine, but um. Again, thank you so much for answering all our questions. And can you remind us the names of uh, the books that are coming? All the the sucking books? And uh, of course, your sci-fi too.
2: Yes. So the the book that's out is... uh, It's a second edition now, Help My Facebook Ads Suck. You can go to thewritingwives.com and click on Our Books. And there's a link where you can get it for free. So if you bought the prior book and and recently or something like that, you're like, Dear God, Mel's trying to build me for all my money. You can get it for free. Um, The ebook, that is, print you're going to have to pay for. I'm not going to give you the print book for free. Um, you can also donate. You can, give us, you can PayPal some money if you want. If you, if you don't want to, you don't have to. Um, and then the next book is coming out. It's, it's either going to be... I think it's going to be the first Thursday of, of March is when it'll be out. So possibly the same week as, um, as SPS Live in, in London uh, is uh, Help My Launch Plan Suck. And that book is actually kind of neat because we talk about like who, what, how you write, how often you could launch, and then what kind of plan will work for you. And it also comes with some PDFs um, and even a spreadsheet where you put in like the date you're going to launch at and the kind of plan you want to have. And it backfills all the dates that you should be doing all the, all the tasks at. So you don't have to like think about them all. It's just like, here's a spreadsheet with all your dates. Just go for it. Um, and then the one that will be coming out in April will tell my marketing strategies suck. And that's going to be more of a broad look at all the things you should be doing to try and market your books from low budget to high budget to building a funnel between them and stuff like that. So that's what we have going on there. And those are all linked on thewritingwives.com. writingwives.com. And then I write science fiction um, under the pen name M.D. Cooper. And that's um, a, a universe called Aeon 14. All of my books, excepting except one, are in that universe. So if you want to sort of dive into like a massive universe. And my goal there is to become the most prolific sci-fi author of all time. So if you want to join in on that crazy journey, you can come with me. And then I, I have one, actually a third pen name now. Um, I actually I've wrote a book. I'm writing a couple more, more under Mallory Cooper that are about being, about being trans and, uh, and and my coming out journey. is if so you're interested in that, because you might have like the links they, they showed before for Mallory, have her with a beard last time I saw her, and there's definitely no beard now. So that book's called um, How Wearing Leggings Changed My Life. You're, you're interested in that too.
0: Well, Google has other people's faces if you look me up. So I mean, I don't have a beard in any of them, but <laughs> they're not the best. <laughs> All right, well thank you very much and we will definitely include the links to not all of your books because you have however many in the sci-fi but <laughs> definitely. definitely your your sci-fi author name and page and all the the sucking books which is really what our audience needs. I, I, I think it's what I need. I might pick up that launch plan when that comes Great. out. <laughs> and um, thank you everyone for listening. And thank you to Joshua Pearson for producing the show. You can leave questions or comments or find the show notes at sixfigureauthors.com with the number six. And if you want to join our listeners only Facebook group, search for Six Figure Authors or come by the, the website for the link. Uh, thank you so much, Mal. I hope you have an awesome launch of the new books and uh, awesome,
2: I guess it's almost spring. Yeah, it is. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. See you. Ya- see you later,
1: everyone. So Goodbye, everybody.